Turn your great idea into a reality with our old friends at Squarespace because they make it easier than ever to launch your passion project, show yourself off, and have a shingle online. It's 2018, or maybe 2019, if you're listening to this later, you know? That's a thing you can do. Either way, you live in a year that is essentially the future. You ought to have a website in it. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for today's show comes from the Jim Jeffries Show podcast. They have a podcast. That's right. Jim Jeffries, the amazing Australian comedian. He has a Comedy Central show, Amazing Comedy Central show, and it has a podcast too. You can get his inquisitive and sometimes controversial take on American politics and culture. You'll also get jokes that weren't used on the show, backstory on his international field pieces. He goes places like the Great Barrier Reef. Isn't that cool? Don't you want to go there? Go there with your ears by listening to new episodes of the Jim Jeffries Show podcast. Releasing every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also also starting to want to be able to speak Portuguese. That is a clip from 3%, and 3% is a Netflix TV show that I am most of the way through. No spoilers, please. It's very, very dramatic. I don't want that spoiled. It's a Brazilian-made show about a dystopian world of environmental collapse and societal dysfunction and runaway capitalism. You know, nothing realistic. And 3% is available on Netflix because Netflix produced it, and I think most people forget that's a radical change from even a few years ago. At one point in the distant past, Netflix was a company that mailed people DVDs of shows that other companies made. If you fast forward to this past May, Netflix announced that they will spend $8 billion this year with a B on writing and shooting and making their own shows and movies. Also, they will have over 1,000 original shows and movies on their service by the end of this year, 2018. So, of course, Netflix branched into the Spanish language with their original series, Club de Cuervos, that premiered in 2015. Then, of course, they did 3% to get into Portuguese in 2016. I'm sure they're going to hit every language they can and have done some others I missed. Because uh, you don't build a big enough company to replace the entire entertainment industry without going global. And here's another thing about that. Netflix doesn't crank out that much stuff without getting good at marketing it. And without getting so good at marketing it, you can get me, an English speaker, to watch subtitled Portuguese Hunger Games. That is skillful advertising. And that's the germ of today's podcast topic. The topic is the weird ways marketers boil you down and see your future. And you know our guest, folks. He is Jason Pargin. He writes for Cracked and the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. And Jason is going to share his television viewing habits and more, like, uh, like a lot more, which would be a scarier revelation to make about oneself if oneself was not being dissected and picked over and examined by most of the companies in the world now, including Netflix, every day. And Jason has some fascinating insights on how powerful that marketing has gotten I can't wait to get into them with him. So please sit back, 
or sit with a Portuguese to English dictionary if you want to really, really get into the show 3%. I, I need more people to watch it with. You know, I just I just want some pals. So let's let's be 3% heads or 3 per percenterinos. What would the name be? We'll figure it out. Either way, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. As I said in the intro, we are sparked by your latest column. Um, and it's a, it's a very interesting piece to me because I feel like you, Jason Pargin, have had many, many of your crimes uh, just sort of revealed by the investigative reporter, Jason Pargin. Uh, how, did, how did he get so deep into your head and into your system? I want to stop for a moment. I am not saying that Netflix has successfully accused me of any crimes <laughs> I've committed. I am saying they are predicting I will commit future crimes, ah. which I, in my current state, may not realize I'm going to commit, which I think is the, the heart of the matter, which is that it's very possible or we are very quickly reaching a point where a company can know you better than you know yourself. Yeah, it's sort of sort of amazing that the premise of Minority Report could be on the way because we all watch TV a lot. That's crazy. Yeah, only instead of predicting like when a murder is going to occur, it predicts when you're about to order a new sofa. <laughs> For those of you who have not read my article or who skipped over the intro, what my article was about is that one very fun and easy way to find out what a company thinks about you and how they've pegged your personality is to simply go to your Netflix homepage because you may not realize that they are customizing that to you in a way that's not obvious. Like obviously you've got the modules where it says based on watching this, you may like this. That part is of course customized. Most people don't realize is that the little images, the preview images of the show, what I'm going to call the thumbnails, the little preview thumbnails for the same show are different for different people based on what they think you will click on. And that sounds very straightforward until you see it in action and, yeah. <laughs> and compare your Netflix to the Netflix of your husband or wife or best friend and realize, oh, wait a second, Netflix has a much lower opinion of me <laughs> than what they have of my wife. And that was what I was calling out in my column, which is that Netflix has pegged me into a specific demographic that I believe is made up entirely of some kind of depraved sex criminals. <laughs> the number one demographic. Everybody wants it. And I'm so glad you you dove into Netflix, too, because for one thing, the, the way they're marketing it is extra interesting, given that everyone looking at this menu of all the different shows has basically purchased all of them. Like once you subscribed, you bought everything and now they're just trying to get you to watch a whole bunch of stuff. So that it's such an interesting case. And, and it's also something everyone with Netflix has experienced, opening it up and just kind of looking at that first, you know, 20 or so shows you can see and thinking, oh, well, what do I do now? And, and Netflix is really, really interested in guiding that process. You know, you joke about like, well, they, they clearly want the lucrative future serial killer demographic, but that's actually the point. The point is that this system doesn't care. 
Yeah. Like if it thinks that you like seeing women being injured, this system does not judge you. It's like, well, yeah, sure. Here's, here's some other women being injured for you. That, that's your thing, right? Like it doesn't make a judgment. So <laughs> yeah. we're going to run down a few of the examples from the column. I realize you cannot actually see these if you're listening to this in your car. But Netflix, because they lost a lot of their library of movies and are about to lose a lot more because their, their deal with Disney is expiring, they've invested heavily in like a lot of series from other countries. Uh, they have a ton of imports. Like they've really tried to fill out their library with these fairly obscure, like a lot of more crime dramas from the BBC or from France or whatever. So a lot of these are that. In other words, it's not necessarily trying to show me Seinfeld, like she gets George and I get Jerry. They're, these are shows that they know <laughs> we're probably not familiar with, right? Like, so yeah. they're presenting them as completely different genres. So, for instance, there's a show called The Forest. I think it's a foreign import, probably a limited crime miniseries. That's actually not relevant. On my wife's YouTube, the thumbnail is a woods, and it's like kind of like foggy and misty, and there's like a wolf standing there. It's called The Forest. So the show could be anything. It looks kind of mysterious, and it could be like a fantasy show. It could be about that wolf, for all we know. On my account... It is a totally naked woman standing in the woods, just kind of, she doesn't have an expression on her face. She's just standing there. Now, you could say, well, that's not that alarming. Maybe they detected that you're a man, that you're more likely to click on a naked woman because you think, well, you know, maybe it's a uh, porn. Maybe Netflix finally has added porn. Or maybe just they figured, well, it's a sexy thumbnail. But in my view, like a naked woman standing alone in the woods, there's nothing good that has led to that <laughs> happening or that's going to come from that happening. No one's happily lost naked. Never happens. Uh, right. Uh, so unless she's like doing it on a dare or something. But, but that was the first one I noticed. And when I first noticed it, I thought, oh, haha, Netflix is showing me a naked woman where my wife gets an adorable animal. You know, it's probably just a man and woman thing. So there is another show on the BBC called Crazy Head. I think it's a BBC show. And it is about a couple of young women who fight like, I think, some sort of supernatural evil or something. So my wife's thumbnail are the two leads, two young women looking right at the camera. And they kind of look like badasses. Uh, they look like they mean business. And it, it's really advertising the show well. Like, look at the adventures of these two strong young women. My thumbnail is another young woman also in the woods <laughs> with blood on her face, staring terrified <laughs> off camera. Yeah. Again, clearly in danger, clearly a victim of some kind. There's another show called Glitch. I think this is an Australian drama they've imported. My wife's thumbnail is of a woman standing in a pond. Just in a, in a conservative one-piece bathing suit, just in a pond, it says glitch. There's no indication of what the glitch is. If I saw this, I would think maybe it's something about just a middle-aged woman and her struggles, like, you know, life, her life has glitched, you know, or maybe people call her that. It just it seems like a, a show for a woman. This is a, she's kind of just standing there. It's a, 
it's not suggesting action or anything. She's just standing there on the water. It's a nice, yeah. nicely framed shot. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It's, it's just sort of vague. It's just, oh, there's a lady in a lake. Okay, yeah. Mine is that same woman with blood on her face, <laughs> looking frightened at something. Looking at this thumbnail, I actually can't tell if she actually has blood on her face in the show or in the photo or if they have just manipulated it because it's sort of overlaid with a red filter of some kind or some design underneath it. But it gives the impression of streaks of blood on her face and in her hair. Yeah, it's sort of like the movie Carrie or something. It's a much different vibe to it. Uh, The show, the ABC drama Quantico. Quantico, of course, is either the headquarters of the FBI or is it their FBI's training facility? It's associated with the FBI somehow. The show is called Quantico, and it's about a female FBI agent, I'm assuming. Yeah, it says FBI Academy is there, and yeah, about Alex Parrish, a bright FBI recruit so my wife's thumbnail for quantico is a woman in a suit her professional fbi clothes just looking out looking at the viewer strong strong female character she looks like she means business she's not smiling she's an fbi agent mine is that same woman with blood on her face Mm -hmm. in a revealing tank top showing off her cleavage being manhandled by a man in a black mask she is completely a victim in this shot she is being sexualized in the shot. She has blood on her face. And there yeah. is a man who is threatening her, and she is looking off camera, looking distressed. I assume that usually when you sit down with Netflix, you just sort of put the Friday the 13th movies on, on kind of a loop, just, I don't know, 100 times, 200 <laughs> times. Is that your, That's your normal use of Netflix, right? It's just a display device for that. We, we will talk about my Netflix usage in a moment, but I'm, because we're going to stop going through examples. But in my article... I have many more. Yeah, where there's a lot. Each time, <laughs> each time my wife gets some sort of an intriguing image. It's an image that it doesn't suggest a lot. Like it's just a picture of a house or it's a picture of of a woman talking to a man. And with mine, I get a close-up of a distressed woman. And even on comedies where she will get like a group of people together like laughing, I will get a close-up of the female lead looking distressed. That to me is weird because this is what I want to talk about. If I watched nothing but shows about women being tortured, this would be perfectly understandable. Right. Most of my Netflix, me and my wife watched together. The most recent show I watched on here, and I've I've got my Netflix open. The most recent one I watched was The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Um, <laughs> you know, I watch a, a lot of comedies. Now, I do watch a lot of horror. As some people who know the site and know me, I'm a professional horror author in my second job. So I watch some horror movies just because I like the genre, but I don't specialize in, or at least I'm not aware of myself specializing in movies about women being in danger, women being tortured, anything like that. I would love to know. I would love to have a peek into their backend database about what data they have about my click habits and my watch habits, because I don't know if people realize Netflix doesn't just know what you watch. They know how long you watched it. They know where you bailed out of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have as detailed metrics as 
anyone could ever possibly have because why why wouldn't they it's all coming off their own server they can tell exactly like what scenes you rewound and watched again or whatever so i would love to know what their calculus was there unless like it may be as innocent as males are more, more likely to click on women in danger because of our like they may have judged hey this guy right. you know jason he's a hero he he would save any woman he saw in danger and so clearly if he sees a woman in danger in a thumbnail he will want to watch it because his heroic instincts are such that he would be automatically like hey this woman needs my help i unfortunately do not think that's what their database says <laughs> but i personally think that they are appealing to something bad in my personality that they know is there that I would prefer to not think about being there. And that more importantly, they don't care that it's there. Their mm -hmm. reaction to them thinking that I want to see women being tortured in a chair is to say, Oh yeah, we got all sorts of movies about that. Here they are. Just as if Amazon detects you buying some of the supplies to cook crystal meth, their algorithm will just like, oh, yeah, here people who buy this also buy this. People who buy lots of Sudafed also buy lots of bleach or whatever else. I'm trying right. to remember Breaking Bad, how they cook the <laughs> meth. Um, if someone can look up the exact method for cooking meth, we'll put it in the footnotes of the, of the episode. Um, because it's not, it's not there to judge. And here's where I think you and I disagree, because I... I don't think there's a human behind that decision. I don't think there's any one person at Netflix that thinks I'm a violent sex pervert. I think their algorithm simply says, if you watched this, you will watch that. And it, that no one even looks at it. That's interesting. Yeah, because I, I get the sense that these companies have data scientists doing broad work with it. Um, but I, I agree that it's probably driven. They probably let the individual basis measurement happen through algorithms. Um, and then I would imagine there's some kind of actuarial kind of job doing the broad categories, sort of like how, uh, like when I try to get car insurance, I am a single young male, youngish male. And so then I'm in the demographic that has the most accidents. So it's very expensive. That's not based on anything I did personally, but I would imagine they're doing a similar thing where they say, oh, all men who watch Netflix want these crazy things, which is a very mean presumption, but maybe they have some kind of data that makes them think that's what people want. It's weird. So let me, I want to go into your, because you compared yeah. your Netflix to your girlfriend's, and I want to see what depravity <laughs> Netflix has detected in you. That way this is not, this is not just a one-sided thing, because you also saw you were getting an alternate universe, right? Because <laughs> we... Both watch Netflix often together, uh, like you and your wife. And I decided to look at first shows that both me and my girlfriend have watched on Netflix uh, on each of our own accounts. And there was a weird thing where um, there was just a set of comedies in a row right away in the menu. It was Arrested Development, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, The Office, and Parks and Rec. And for some reason, I got nothing but one really cartoony character making a big expression. It's Buster Bluth 
Titus from Kimmy Schmidt, and then Michael Scott and Leslie Nope. They're just key characters doing big things, or key character, I should say. And then in her case, it was just groups of people. Um, she it was and groups of people often being pretty muted, like her thumbnail for the office is five of the characters all just kind of leaning around a desk, not smiling, which is a pretty, pretty intense thumbnail for the office. But that's what she got. And it's curious to me because then I did looked more at uh, shows neither of us watch. And it was the same thing. I got one main character for Weeds. I got David Spade enjoying a cake in a very enormous way for Rules of Engagement. I got just the guy who was also a Bond villain for their their show Lost in Space, which is very typed to me because people know I love Pierce Brosnan James Bond movies. And they showed me the guy from Die Another Day. Crazy. And even this show Marcella that I've never seen is just one character. And then for my girlfriend, it was two to six characters for those shows. It's it's all group activity for the thumbnails. And uh, that's not like upsetting to me or anything, but it is weird that we have uh, on paper probably pretty similar Netflix habits and they decided to show me just huge single crazy characters and show her groups of people. And just to be clear, Netflix, when you sign up, it doesn't ask your gender, right? I think so. I don't believe it does. I think it just asks for a username, but it clearly has defined gender in most cases. I think yeah. the case for a human being in charge of this is that obviously somebody photoshopped these images. But right. my question is, do they have someone sit down with just, because a lot of these are just publicity stills, right? Released from the studio. Have they just sat down with these and made hundreds of them? And then they just right. did their click testing and it just cycles through them until it figures out the, the, you know, once you've been profiled and it's, we'll get into it later, but what I found out when I did some digging, and this is also in my article, they've actually do like everyone who uses Netflix. You, one thing you notice is kind of fun is they have these hyper specific categories, you know, and Netflix boasts that they have, I've heard it anywhere from like 25,000 to 75,000 categories of movie all the way down to like, Eastern European zombie romance yeah. featuring cursed lovers. Like, <laughs> because they figure out that like, it's not just Westerns. They're like, no, these people, some people like romantic Westerns. Some people like violent ones or whatever, but most people don't realize they have categories of users too. You, each of you listening to this are in a genre of user. It is not made public, or if it is public, I can't find it. They said there are a couple thousand of them. They call them taste communities. And you are in a taste community. And I think if you knew the name of your taste community, you would probably be mildly insulted. <laughs> because as we will find out later, we will get into how like advertisers traditionally pigeonhole people based on income and like where they are in life. And they're usually mildly insulting. You have some information about their thumbnail strategy because they have talked about it, right? Yeah, they have They have been somewhat public about it, and they would occasionally do posts on Medium, for the most part, about what they're doing. The Verge did some reporting on it in 2016, and I had read it around then. And so when I saw my Netflix thumbnails where if it's Arrested Development, it's just Buster Bluth making a crazy face, uh, that fit with what I read because – 
in this piece, we'll footnote, they said that Netflix found the most thumbnail success with close-ups of emotionally expressive faces, also showing people villains instead of heroes, and then don't show more than three characters was sort of the key rule. And so those are the thumbnails they tend to show me. So I just thought, okay, they're just doing their thing that they seem to now generally do with everybody because they found it works. But my girlfriend's getting different stuff. And uh, according to that piece, and Netflix is screwing it up for her. They're not giving her the most engaging stuff to click on. And it's really curious to me. Like, it, clearly, they just think we are different people, which we are, so they're right. Uh, but they think we're different people in some very specific way where the, the sort of mass version of thumbnails works the best on me, something like that. It, it's hard to exactly type what they're saying about us. And I also think that what Netflix says to the public is not the whole picture. Oh, yeah. Because I think if they (laughs) dug into the actual calculus that does go into it, that it would come off. It would come off as creepy because it is creepy. Yeah. But as you mentioned, like based on the three rules I mentioned here, like my wife is getting landscapes. animals (laughs) yeah like groups groups of more than three characters there's something they know that's different whereas me i'm the one getting extreme close-ups of they're calling them expressive faces i'm getting extreme close-ups of panicked faces i'm not getting close-ups of laughing people i'm getting close-ups of very upset people that feels very voyeuristic So this is, I would love to know, I don't doubt people that work there would say that the reality is actually very boring, just as, you know, with Cracked, long-time readers know, like, we test different titles for articles, we test different thumbnails, preview images for articles, but we don't have any data, (laughs) we... We don't, you know, aside from the fact that we know, as every single person knows, that an image of a celebrity will do better than a stock photo of a shoe. like. But that's about as, as advanced as we get because we don't have a sophisticated data operation. We just sort of see what people will click on. And 99% of the time, it's exactly what you would expect. Yeah. Where if the image is kind of striking, they'll click on it. And if it's boring, they won't. Uh, thumbnails that are in black and white, we used to do a lot of articles uh, about history and, and things like that. So if you use a black and white photo, nobody will click on it. For whatever reason, it just registers as boring. But you can take that exact same article and put a full color photo on it and more people will click. I don't think we've ever detected anything weird because we don't have Netflix's data operation. We don't have the tens of billions of data points how many how many netflix users are there isn't like a hundred million or something like that this claims 130 million yeah so you have 130 million netflix users out there using it you know watching multiple things a week if they're like me easily they'll spend 45 minutes browsing through the menu netflix has exact data on what you didn't click on Right. They have exact data on how long you had to browse around before you saw something that caught your eye. Their mountain of data has to be astounding. And even it is dwarfed by the mountain of data that Facebook has, that Google has. Yeah, this uh, I'm seeing a TechCrunch article here that at the end of 2017, Netflix said that in 2017, users collectively watched over one billion hours of stuff. 
so that that's a that's a pretty good uh, data set. It's pretty pretty useful. And has to be another twenty billion hours of scrolling through menus. Yeah. <laughs> The variety of ways they try to catch your eye, it's almost fun to just look through the menu, uh, especially if you're just curious about pop culture in general. It's sort of a weird form of entertainment on its own. And I guess that means it's really effective advertising. Because it's very easy to flip back and forth between accounts, I would encourage everyone listening to this. If you've got a friend, you've got a partner, a coworker who's got a Netflix account, both of you pull them up and look. It really is interesting because you're going to get even different results than Alex and I got because our differences were different still. Like his his thumbnail for Marcella is one that neither me or my wife got. It's not like they only have two. Well, and also one thing with mine, uh, it was sort of strange in particular with the comedies I do watch. I felt like they were all pretty effective for just me personally. They did a good job of... I think all four of the comedies that I watched, the thumbnail was of my favorite character from the show. And like I had a poster of Buster Bluth at my cracked desk at one point because I just really like Buster Bluth. And then when Netflix serves up a show I've already watched, somehow they knew that out of the, what, eight or nine main characters in Arrested Development, the guy with the hook hand was the one I wanted to see. That's amazing. That I wanted to stop and talk about a little bit, because that to me is the most interesting point of anything I brought up in my article. Buster Bluth is not the main character of that show. He is not the second main character of that show. He's not the character they use to sell that show. He's not the one who's the most famous outside of that show. But he is your favorite character. How would they know that? And it can't be that they caught you watching other shows he's in like Veep because Veep is not on Netflix. That's only on HBO. So what data did they have? Did they notice that you watched the Buster heavy episodes more frequently? Do you tend to rewatch? Yeah. When I, when I watch it, I just sort of watch a season I like straight through because it's also such a good show to watch all in one run because everything fits together. Like I'm not even cherry picking stuff. They just kind of either figured it out or they love Buster in a thumbnail and have a bunch of thumbnails of that. This this stuff is really fun to look at because it's so mysterious. Well, this is the point because I I think there are experts out there who would say that that was just a lucky accident on their part. And we're going to get into later. There's a famous example of a involving the Target chain that is a point of controversy where it's the same thing where it appeared that target had guessed something almost supernaturally well and then others say now nah, it was probably just it was probably just a, a lucky guess that they're not that good this is the heart of the entire discussion are they that good like they have the data because i think as you mentioned in the notes to this for this episode This appears to be a very crude tool. When you go online and buy whatever, whatever you, Alex, the type of thing you buy, uh, lawn equipment, uh, chainsaws, whatever you. uh, Yeah, mostly boats. Yeah, mostly boats. Golf equipment, uh, (laughs) your your power tools that you buy. (laughs) When you buy a, a a riding lawnmower, you get banner ads for riding lawnmowers for the next two years as if. Yeah. Buying a riding lawnmower means you're now in the market for a second riding lawnmower because <laughs> you need a, a you need a spare. Like it's extremely crude. Like they have not accurately deduced. Oh, this guy bought a Honda 
you're riding lawnmower, he's going to need bags for it. He's going to need replacement blades for it. Like, yeah, it's not that sophisticated yet. And this is one reason why I think when I talk about the subject, a lot of people probably do tune out a little bit because I'm talking about minority report stuff. Like, but the entire joke I was making is that Netflix has not accurately pigeonholed me as a sex criminal. They have not successfully predicted crimes I'm going to commit 18 months from now that they're they're wrong in what they're saying. We are in the fetal stages of this technology because it's only in the last few years they've been able to gather this. I mean, if you if you explain to somebody now how TV networks figured out what a hit show was in 1985, it sounds hilarious. They would send people a little notebook and tell them to write down what show they watched. And they would just have a sampling, like a small, you know, like a polling sample. It was the Nielsen group that did it. And each Nielsen household basically represented like 10,000 viewers. So when they said that the Cosby show was seen by like 25 million people, in reality, it was like 20,000 people with Nielsen diaries remembering to write down that they wrote the Cosby show. So you get people who like maybe were ashamed of what they watched and so didn't write it down or people who were lazy about writing down the show. Or if there was some like really sophisticated drama and they wanted to pretend like they watched it, (laughs) but, but didn't, it's like, Oh, like I think back then the wire would have done really well because everyone would have been like, Oh yeah, I've been watching the wire from day one. They like every week they would write it down. Oh yeah. Me and my whole family sat down to watch the wire. And then we talked about the war on drugs and its impact on society. It's like, no, you didn't. You watched cake boss all night, (laughs) but they didn't have any ability to tell what your television was tuned to. It was an over the air signal. Right. Right. And when they used to like judge like the top 40 songs or the hot 100 singles, they would do like a survey of places that had jukeboxes (laughs) and radio stations. Like it was this incredibly crude just like this crude, like, oh, they would just like skim a few select places and then just, that was it. That's how they built there. And it was open to manipulation. There was all sorts of like pay for play stuff going on. It was never like them actually being able to tell right. what songs are being played. The people sitting in their cars, how many people turned off the radio when the song came on. They had no way of knowing that. <laughs> Now they do for the first time in human history. They have detailed data customer by customer about what products you're using and how you're using them, especially anything that has to do with entertainment. Yeah, it is sort of amazing that in the past, all data was about as primitive as now the the gas company sending a guy to read your meter in person, which may be going away. Probably they'll probably automate that. But it used to be piles of paper being generated to like hand receive who watched what or who listened to what. The way entertainment used to work, it was the equivalent of having the gas guy come to your house and just ask you how much gas you used and having you just estimate it 
and then skipping the next five houses and just estimating what they used based on what you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there were only like three gas companies offering gas. That was it. <laughs> right. And th- which is why they didn't care. Because back then, like yeah. even a failure of a show would only get 45 million <laughs> viewers because <laughs> there was nothing else on it. It's like, oh, this game show is a disaster. We only, we only got, we dipped below 46 million last night. You you have some stuff here about how because Netflix I think they were revolutionary in how they basically created their content based on the data they had because Netflix had been around for a long time before they started spending literal billions of dollars on making original movies like Bright and original yeah. shows like House of Cards um, and that gets really interesting because again prior to that so much entertainment was made they knew like okay well this guy's a big star so we'll do another show featuring this big star but in terms of like what the shows would be about and deciding what got made it was such a guessing game yeah it's so it's easy to forget that in the very recent past netflix was a company that mailed you dvds of stuff that other companies made. They mailed you DVDs of shows by traditional studios and television networks. And then as uh, recently as 2011, they were ramping up to launching their first original show, I believe. It was called House of Cards. Y'all know what it is. And they, according to reporting in the New York Times and elsewhere, they based a lot of their decisions on greenlighting House of Cards and making House of Cards on the success of works by director David Fincher and star Kevin Spacey, also the success of the original British version of House of Cards. They took those three stats from their own Netflix viewing because they had moved towards streaming by that point. And they said, we have exact powerful data that says people will watch a show made of these three things. So that's why we'll make the show and that's why we'll do it. And then it also won a couple of industry awards. And between that and people watching it, they were off to the races. Now they make everything. Yeah. And that has weird implications for the future. Because for one thing, Netflix is coming off of kind of a rough run in terms of their original content. Like it was part of those same data points that told them that Adam Sandler was a good investment. And, and right. maybe he has been uh, like where they they just saw the rate at which people would watch Adam Sandler movies. I think it's a case where his movies make for like a good two screen experience where it's kind of going on in the background while you do something else on your on your phone. Right. <laughs> but, but I don't know <laughs> that their system cares why people watch Adam Sandler movies. I don't know that it gets that deep into it. There are lots of things that should go into making art other than showing what people what people will buy. <laughs> Ideally, it's more than that. Like even a studio like they know that like Paul Thomas Anderson movies are not going to make a huge amount of money. They will invest it because there's somebody in the studio who wants it's a prestige thing or they just want to be the 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 people who work with him or they know that it will attract other talent. Like there's other calculus that goes into it, right? including things like if somewhere in Hollywood there's someone who actually does have a conscience and wants and worries about representation beyond saying, well, Black Panther made lots of money, so let's make other shows that start with the word black. It's it, it's beyond that. It's, it's getting ahead of where the money is and saying, you know what, we're going to take a risk 
and cast people who maybe don't sell movies, but we're going to do it because it's the right thing, because that's how art is supposed to work. And if you're basing everything off of an algorithm, there's not a lot of room for that. Do you have a dream? Does it involve maybe an online component? Well, guess what? It's 2018, 19, or 20, or beyond. Every dream has an online component. Why don't you use Squarespace to make it happen? They make it easier than ever to build an entire website from a beautiful template created by a world-class designer. You'll customize it however you want, and whatever you do with it, it will work well on mobile. Because guess what? Everybody looks at the internet on their phones. We have metrics over at the website crack.com, and they're not as advanced as the powers of Netflix, but they're pretty good, and they tell us that people use the internet on their phones. Why don't you have a website that works there? They also have e-commerce functionality. You can buy your own custom domain. They also empower everyone to build a website by having 24-7 customer support for your site. It's great. So why don't you enjoy it by heading to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked. I feel like Netflix has maybe hit that point of doing a wide range of stuff now just because they are making such a volume of stuff that they kind of do everything. But earlier on, it was that very specific algorithm-driven thing. And like you say, it tilts it towards certain people, especially established people. Um, also, the the main New York Times article we're drawing on for this House of Cards background is from 2013 and feels kind of dark now because the article is mainly about House of Cards, but it also trumpets it and two other shows as these are the new Netflix original programming things. What a turn they've taken. And two of them are House of Cards and Arrested Development uh, having new seasons, which have both since had huge scandals around Kevin Spacey and around Jeffrey Tambor. And it almost feels like maybe the algorithm steered them into making shows with people that are just not uh, savory to work with all the time. And uh, that's a bummer. And also something that's kind of entirely predictable. Like the algorithm doesn't know what people are whispering to each other behind the scenes and on sets about this kind of talent. And even if they couldn't have known, there's no way for them to have had that information or whatever. If it's driven by an algorithm, you're reinforcing what works at the cost of everything else, which is the opposite of what art is is supposed to be. And when I talk about art, I'm not, you know, I'm not a child. I I didn't just graduate college with an art degree and I'm not showing up at a studio saying, you know, all you people care about is your money. We should be making (laughs) movies that enrich people. I'm saying that Star Wars was a horrible investment when it was made. Everyone thought it was going to be a disaster. That was a risk. Now it is the opposite of a risk. Now, with Disney saying, we're just going to make nothing but Star Wars movies forever until until you you take up arms and and storm the studio and make us stop. It will be <laughs> Star Wars until you hate it. At the time, Star Wars, that was not a popular genre. Science fiction was not doing that well. It did not have any famous stars. It, you know, it went way over budget. It was an objectively the script was total nonsense. Like there was a system in place that allowed a risk to be taken that 
has to occur to find the next thing that's going to set people's imagination on fire. You know, and, and Hollywood is full of these. I would say most of the original, like, non-sequel hits looked like a bad idea at some point. Like, looking back at The Matrix, I remember article after article in the month before The Matrix came out. It's like, oh, my God, it's a Keanu Reeves hacker movie. <laughs> like, Keanu right. had made, like, six bad movies in a row. No one wants to watch movies about hackers. It's like, who in the hell is going to go see this thing? Like, it was just, I think they did jokes about it. Like, comedians did jokes about it. Like, Hollywood just throws money at these terrible ideas. But that's the whole thing about the business Netflix is in, which is of making things people want to watch is that you aren't supposed to be able to predict it because what people want is something they've never seen before. And if you are using a computer algorithm to try to calculate what's the thing they've never seen before that they're going to want to see, I feel like that's how you wind up with something like Bright, which yeah. most people don't think is a good movie, but and I know that even like the screenwriter Max Landis came out and was like, "I this is not the movie I wrote." <laughs> like I, like I don't know, <laughs> but that feels like a project they picked up because it's like, well, Will Smith movies do well. The Netflix audience is still a little bit younger and more prefers like sci-fi fantasy. They they tend to be gamers. It's still a little bit, you know, it's more that rather than the grandmas still at this point. So, you know, Will Smith, sci-fi fantasy, that's all we need to know. The, the issue for people who have not seen Bright because their Netflix algorithm didn't push it to them as hard as it pushed it to me. And it was pushed to me <laughs> very hard. Oh, yeah. It has a lot me. of stuff in there. It's like an allegory for modern racism and police violence, only instead of like white and black people, it's humans and orcs and elves. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> and they use like a lot of phrasing. Um, like, like at one point, Will Smith kills a, a fairy, an actual fairy, and says, fairy lives don't matter. So it's a lot of things that make you cringe <laughs> that a human looking at it would say, you know what, I get what they were going for but in this in the trump era like in this atmosphere that there was a human who would say you know what this is not gonna i don't care who we've got on board this is not gonna play like i'm telling you that the atmosphere right now this needs a heavy rewrite or something whereas i don't know that there's room in the netflix system for that i think the netflix system says we've got the screenwriter behind batman or whoever it was We've got Will Smith, biggest star in the world. We've got, you know, an FX budget of this much. And it's about orcs and stuff right. that we've got great data showing that Lord of the Rings did well, blah, blah, blah. We've got great data showing that gritty crime does well. You mix those things together. How could it possibly be terrible? <laughs> and, and there are thousands of years of artists who have been saying that same thing. I will take this thing that people love. And this thing that people love, and I will put them together, and it will be free money. <laughs> it's like, no, you have you have made a bad thing. You have made a thing that makes people sad. Yeah, it's such a perfect example because I feel like any algorithm would tell you that the Lord of the Rings is massive and the wire is massive. So just mathematically, you'll get the biggest <laughs> amounts of money you can. 
And any yeah. subjective person would tell you those two things don't quite fit together. The things that are significant and cool about them really, really clash. Because, <laughs> But that gets into understanding what mood people are in when they watch something understanding what right like that yeah. that you don't that you don't want chili and ice cream at the same time <laughs> you know you were correct that i like both of those things but when you tried to, to put them together you don't you didn't understand a lot of things about so the big question is and we didn't want to spend the whole episode talking about netflix because that was just that's like the most easily accessible example mm-hmm. but if, for instance amazon's data as you mentioned has, has to be better than what netflix has because on top of their prime with their shows they've got all of your purchase data and it's the yeah. same account like my prime account is my prime account like they know that i ordered like a giant case of of like rat poison Mm-hmm. And so somewhere, if they're not already doing it, somewhere their database is going to say, okay, the type of guy who buys like two years worth of rat poison at a time probably likes this show. <laughs> he probably <laughs> likes Transformers. Sure, and yeah. that's when it will truly get weird. Like if you're, if they have identified you're a young male and you buy a lot of sporting, uh, sporting goods, if you buy a lot of outdoorsy stuff, mountain right. biking stuff, right? There's a certain type of show you're probably going to be into. I do not know yet if, if Amazon is fully taking advantage of, of that stuff yet. Yeah, because the the extremely limited evidence we have suggests that they'll at least have the ability to, because that same that same write up of Netflix launching original programming, for one thing, Netflix sort of invented a business when they started making original shows. Amazon has sort of tagged it onto their existing giant, giant business of making original streaming shows too. There are a whole other streaming services like Hulu that's still around or CISO that's gone and other ones too where people say, great, we can build a whole model out of people subscribe a few dollars a month or lots of dollars in some cases uh, to see things streaming on a device. They sort of built how that works And the same article about Netflix getting into that programming, it quotes a cable executive who wants to remain anonymous saying that they talked to Amazon about what this article in 2013 calls its nascent prime service about using data-driven approaches to make their programming. It's this this behind-the-scenes conversation. They say Amazon's doing exactly the same thing. And why wouldn't they? Because it seemed to work for Netflix. But also that means that Netflix has lured... I think basically everyone else who makes movies and TV shows into taking this same approach because it worked with Kevin Spacey. So why not do it with uh, everything else? Yeah. And it's clear, like when I watch YouTube, YouTube is still in a phase where if you watch like a political video, that's like debunking uh, white nationalism, like it will then feed you a video from a Nazi. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, you like you like watching videos about Nazis. Well, here's a bunch of there's all kinds of Nazis on our service. And that's another that's like maybe the most cold hearted example of there's no like human involved where it's just, you know, hey, you watched this, therefore you'll watch this. Anyone who has spent time on YouTube like me, like watching political videos, you've gotten served the Nazi stuff. I know you have. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, it, it will go straight to that in a few jumps. It's crazy. 
I also know that YouTube wants to show you the longest videos it can. It just prioritizes length. And so now when I watch basically anything, the next recommendations are often long, 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 long videos of birds designed to entertain cats because I showed a cat that <laughs> once or twice. And then YouTube said, he loved it, man. He watched that for like an hour. But I was just leaving it on for a cat and doing something else. Uh, and so YouTube keeps serving me that after comedy, drama, videos of people falling down, whatever they want. They, they want me to show birds to cats again because they think I loved it. And here's where getting into a little bit of the business side from our end as people who make entertainment for a living advertisers paid quite a bit of money to run their ads on that video that only a cat watched <laughs> and they don't yeah. know it. And this is the same thing that came up, you know, last year or whatever, when advertisers realized on YouTube that their ads were being shown on white nationalist videos. Yes. Because from their end, all they got was, Hey, I want my my brand, my body spray or whatever. I want young, educated males. Now, they may not say young white males, but they may say young conservative or young heterosexual college graduates. You know what I mean? Like they yeah, can still arrive there. And so the cold algorithm just says, hey, young white males of a certain age and of a certain political bent also like this and this this happens to be a guy looking into the camera talking about how immigration into europe is going to is the equivalent of white genocide and the ad plays and they collect their money and it took a human finally i think it actually took outrage from people saying wait a second you know it's one thing for these people to have a platform and to speak but why are they able to profit? Why is YouTube able to profit from showing a video of a guy straight up advocating genocide? And I now wonder how many people listening to this are sheltered enough that they don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about the Nazis on YouTube, because I know not everybody goes on YouTube and listens to videos about politics. Right. But it's all over the place. Like it will get, it will be re get recommended to you in your little strip of, hey, you may also find this interesting. And it's a thumbnail with like a map of Europe that is turning black because that's a graphic they used in their video to show how uh, Muslims are, are a disease spreading across Europe. And it's like two videos ago, you watched like a, like a daily show clip. And then from that, you got forwarded to a YouTuber who was just maybe an individual YouTuber doing something about, you know, like making fun of Nazis. And then from there, it's like, well, based on the title and based on people who watch this, they also tend to watch this because they want to go watch the video that was being rebutted in that other video. Yeah. And whether or not you're watching it because you like it or hate it or frightened by it, the algorithm doesn't care. It only cares how much you engaged with it. It really is a super persistent phenomenon. I mean, the joke version would be eventually my cat starts seeing Nazi birds. But the real version is really, <laughs> it's sort of like how on Twitter, they it's all Twitter's also a thing where it's a little bit of a black box, exactly how things get surfaced more or less. But uh, in general, it seems like they've found that anything outrageous just does well. And even people trying to quote, tweet, and dunk on something they hate, it just makes it more popular. It just makes it seen more. 
And I don't know, maybe all these platforms encourage huge things for good or bad, usually bad. So I want to, I, I do want to step outside of like the online content delivery platforms because this is something that pervades like everything in terms of your purchase decisions and everything about how you are marketed to, no matter how you're being marketed to, whether it's direct mail or whatever. Yeah. In the article at the end, I referred to it's called either the claritus prism or the claritus prism. I actually don't know how to pronounce it. It's another one of those things that I've only seen written. Yeah. This is a marketing thing that they came up with in the 90s where they basically broke down everyone in America into 60-some categories. They've added some. I think it's at like 68 now. And here we will also put a link to the prism in the footnotes, I would assume, because here it's fun to click on it and then find out where you're at. Yeah. Because the fundamental realization that to someone else, you're simply a type or an archetype. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned earlier that these are like mildly insulting. (laughs) Is yeah, most of the names are funny. Yeah, like one of them is like number four on the list is the young Digerati. This segment <laughs> is choosing to start families in fashionable neighborhoods on the urban fringe. They are highly educated and very tech savvy. <laughs> I think there's some of these where you, you wish it was you, but it's it, it's actually not. Number 24, the pickup, like pickup truck patriarchs. They live in areas that are somewhat rural, but have more of a suburban taste. They are frequent golfers, boaters, and heavy shoppers. Some of you listening is like, that's, that's my mom and dad. Number 47, the striving selfies. These younger (laughs) singles and couples typically rent apartments and homes. They are among the most tech savvy segments with some college credits under their belt. Number 51, Campers and camo (laughs) primarily found in rural areas. These families enjoy the outdoors despite their age. They are below average in their use of technology. These are the, like this is a polite way. I think that category used to be called, because I cited it in the article. I think they used to be called something like shotguns and porch swings or something like that. I think they came up with a less (laughs) offensive version of it, but they've got everybody on here, including like the extreme poverty. Like if you are extreme, like you're borderline homeless and have like you're on this list, this is to encompass everybody. Everybody is one of these 68 things. And based on that, they can predict a lot about which brands you prefer, how often you'll buy them, all sorts of things like that. And if you want to see a very rough example of this, just contrast the difference between the lobby of a bank and the lobby of a payday loan place. You know, obviously payday loans are, are in the banking business just on they, they they're geared almost entirely toward, you know, lower income, less financially secure people, right? Mm-hmm. A bank is intentionally made to look like it's somewhat wealthy. It's very quiet. It's a sophisticated place. It's supposed to portray like like you can trust us with your with your money. Um it's carpet, you know, the the employees are in suits. And you're almost supposed to be like nervous coming in, right? Like, especially if you're like there to ask for a loan, like you're supposed to be a little bit worried about it. A payday loan place is going to be tiled floor, a counter, more like a fast food restaurant. And weirdest of all, 
they're extremely upfront about like what they offer and how much it costs. It's on like a very clear menu. You know, it's this amount of time, this amount of money. This is the, the, the fee you're going to have to pay. It's very straightforward. It's not where a bank, there's like a ritual in place, like hoops you have to jump through if you want a loan. And it's a little bit obscure what they're yeah. going to offer you or why or what the, what rate you're going to get and they have to go check this or check that. And you got to sit down and talk to somebody where clearly there's a whole other demographic of people that prefer to walk into a place that is, it's very bare, it's tile floors, it's very casual, and they're more comfortable there. All of that stuff is by design. Yeah, and I suppose both of those approaches and then all these 68 different Claritas prism uh, types, they're all prejudicial, right? They're all, in, in just the broadest sense of that, like it's, hey, we expect people to act this way and we're going to try to cater to what we expect of them. We may be wrong about a range of them, but we feel like we'll be right about enough of the the people we're dealing with that it'll profit us. Like you'll hear some people talk about like food deserts, which is a concept that in a poor neighborhood, they don't have a Whole Foods. They don't have a big sprawling grocery store. What they have is our convenience stores. Mm-hmm. So that means their purchase options, in addition to being things that are more expensive, it's a lot of snack food, very little fresh produce, right? It's a lot of processed food to stuff out of their freezer. And the people doing the bulk of their grocery shopping there, which, and so from liberals, you hear a lot of like concern about. Well, this is like objectively bad nutrition for their children. And this is objectively like, you know, they don't have access to fresh greens and things like that. The reality is that in many places, when those places have tried to offer those things, they have not sold very well. There's a self-sustaining cycle where the business is simply saying, we're responding to what the customer says they want. This is what they buy. They buy packaged, prepackaged food, so we sell prepackaged food. It's not our job to try to teach them to have better nutrition. And that when we tried to open a grocery store, it, it went broke because people still prefer to just pop into the convenience store. It was easier, it was faster, you know, it was easier to get to get to and to carry the stuff back um, to there because they're on foot, so they don't want to buy four bags worth of stuff anyway, because they gotta haul it back to their apartment. Each of these there's a self-sustaining thing where it's like, this is your station in life. This is what we know you like. Therefore, we're going to create ads that reinforce the fact that this is the type of thing you like. And unfortunately, that extends to unhealthy habits where things like chewing tobacco, they know there's a certain demographic in a certain region of the country that likes chewing tobacco. And so they know to target their ads there. But the fact that you see an ad for chewing tobacco every five feet in a certain place, it reinforces that this is the social norm because advertising has powerful ability to establish what social norms are. They help establish what in terms of what we find attractive in the opposite sex or in the same sex or whoever we're attracted to. It helps establish beauty standards to help establish success standards. They will go to that young digerati group and say, (laughs) we know what these people aspire to. They aspire to having a McMansion in the suburbs. 
they aspire to having some sort of like a car that's like it's environmentally conscious, but in an advanced way, it's a hybrid or it's a Tesla. Like we know what they aspire to. And so as a result, we are going to tell them what they aspire to because we're going to keep reinforcing those same ideas. So it's all very efficient until you think in terms of, is that a good thing for society where they're not worried about what people should be aspiring to They're only saying, here's what they tend to aspire to. And so this is what we're going to sell them. Thinking back to things like Netflix and things like you say, these marketing types and approaches, they do, especially with the food desert concept, I think that is at least somewhat inflicted on the place, not just generated by the place's initial preferences or something they saw once. And it's stranger even still with things like Netflix or Amazon shows or something else where we don't really know what the types are and how the system works. It's, it's probably presenting us with what we're supposed to like, according to them in some ways that aren't generated by our own decisions or or what we actually wanted to see. I'm saying that they double down on things in a way that's very destructive. For instance, people like using payday loan places. They're also charging like a thousand percent interest. Right. If you have been taught that this is how finances work, like that if your if your check isn't going to cover rent, then we'll give you an advance on your check. But oh, by the way, we're going to seize seventy dollars out of your five hundred dollar check, and that's just the way you've been. And so now this is an established part of the culture, and an extremely ugly and destructive process can get baked in. Where the payday loan places will say, look, no one's putting a gun to their head. The reason there's a payday loan place open on literally every block in these neighborhoods is because they get used. Because people show up there. We're not kidnapping people off the street and dragging them in. They are using their freedom to come in and do this. And I would say that they have built a cycle because the payday loan places are not operating out of the goodness of their hearts. They're doing it because it is incredibly profitable to charge these interest rates. And so you can take a a habit like that that is based on a preference. And yeah, you have an entire generation of people in a neighborhood who were raised on junk food and they legitimately prefer junk food. It's what they were raised on. Like healthy eating habits are difficult. They're time consuming and expensive and everything else. They will now say, oh yeah, this is what I prefer to just get everything from 7-Eleven. And it almost sounds arrogant for me to say, well, they don't know what's best for themselves. But I have plenty of destructive habits that have been built into me (laughs) that are exact, that are just as bad. If you want to look for the worst example, look at smoking. Look at the way that, you know, that they trained people to think smoking was cool. Well, now, yeah, if you ask somebody, why do you smoke? It's like, I chose to smoke because it's cool because it looks cool. But it's like, you know, okay, even if it weren't addictive, there was a cycle there where they took something that was going on and just drove it down your throat until it became entrenched in the culture. And now you can't freaking get rid of it. And those links can be pretty arcane too. Like I, I had a friend growing up who in high school got into chewing tobacco and I was like, why are you using chewing tobacco? And he said, well, I'm on the hockey team. So 
makes sense. And, and that doesn't and make sense you, to me at all. You, you, you wear a mouth guard in the sport. You can't even put it in your mouth. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It was baked into baseball culture for the longest time. Yeah. When I was growing up, they had big league chew. You probably saw this, the bubble gum that was made oh, yeah, to look like, like chewing tobacco. And you could pull it out of a pouch and stick it in your in your mouth. Like it's, you could imitate your, your baseball heroes. Yeah. You know, so again, <laughs> as a kid, as a parent, as anybody else who's buying that product, they would be offended if I said, well, you have been brain washed into this buying this <laughs> product but i'm saying that from a position i have been brainwashed into just as many things you could go down into the into my kitchen and embarrass me with all of the like environmentally conscious coffee i've bought because i had a picture <laughs> of a leaf on the bag when in reality that it was picked by slaves you know or or was produced by the exact same company that makes folgers they just Right. You know, created a separate brand with a leaf on the bag because I knew that I'm so dumb that I, I'll pay twice as much because it's got a leaf in the bag so I can act like this fixes all of the other terrible things that I do in my life. But I mentioned earlier the Target example, and I want to yeah, dig into yeah. that a little bit because that's from a few years ago. And we mentioned it on the site. But what happened was there was a story. This was it was an article in The New York Times is in 2012. And it said, it claimed that there was a father who found out his teenage daughter was pregnant because Target started sending him coupons through the mail for like baby supplies. I, I guess like, uh, I don't know, prenatal vitamins or things like that. In other words, their mass mailing algorithm had detected from the daughter's purchase history that she was pregnant based on what she was eating or ordering or had stopped buying or whatever. Yeah. And so this was like the first, like this is minority report. Like they have now, it turns out this is a controversial article because in the article, he didn't quote like the name of the father or the daughter. It was just, it was thrown out as an, an anonymous anecdote. Yeah. I mean, it's in the New York times. I like to think the guy didn't just pull it out of his ass but there was pushback for people saying, like people who are in data science saying, I guarantee you Target's system is not that good. Like Target wishes their system was that good, but that it was far more likely that that was just a mistake. Like they just detected she was in the age range of someone who could be pregnant and just mailed her some stuff. Like, the, But if that did not happen, it will eventually happen. Like it, it seems yeah. inevitable, but where you and I here, I wanted to get into this because here's where we differ a little bit where I, my belief was that if that had occurred, that there was no human involved in that decision, that it was purely women who tend to buy X usually follow it up by buying Y. And so they just detected there's some, product just without knowing it some cold part of their system you know that those women make that second purchase decision it's because they happen to be pregnant and so it just triggers something in in a database but you say there's actually a whole workforce of humans who do this stuff yeah and i do i do think the end result of their work is often algorithmic but i think they're relentlessly fine-tuning it and improving it and I think it would fit with that Target anecdote, too, because if that was in 2012, uh, the timeline works. Um, there's an article from MIT Technology Review 
that talks about how more and more people are trying to get jobs in data science. And it claims that the term data science was coined in 2008 by two analysts at LinkedIn and Facebook in Silicon Valley. And it was a job before that. It's just people taking these mountains of data that we get and turning them into plans and turning them into business ideas. But the amount of data has ramped up so rapidly that now data science is, it's a very, very, very sought after job. It's essentially like a star coder was and still kind of is too. But there are things like articles in the Harvard Business Review saying that data scientist is the sexiest job of the 21st century, end quote, of the headline. And I can totally see why, because it's a job where you can be a college student who has all these analytical skills, but also wants to do something with a creative component to it, because you're figuring out people's brains, and also with a making lots of money component to it, because these companies will win or lose their entire business if they're better at this. And so it's a thing where I think we are underestimating, just as, as a general society, not you and me, I think all of society is kind of underestimating how important these people are becoming and and how much of a role they have in every message and advertisement and communication we're starting to receive from these companies like Netflix and Amazon that just know so much about what we watch and what we want. Like the there are people whose entire very lucrative, creative, fulfilling jobs is to look at that data and try to, to mess with us better, try to figure out exactly what we're going for. And I think that that's a good summary of where I think we are in this process. I think we've reached a point where they have the data. They have oceans of data. I think they have more data than what they know what to do with. Yeah. We've talked on previous episodes about how much data Facebook has to have on us and how much data you know Google has to have on us. But I don't detect Facebook being all of that smart with the data like they've the company has gone through a lot of problems over the last few years and it seems like a very now like the opposite of an agile company like like they <laughs> right. they now seem like an, an antiquated lumbering like they feed you your post in some random order they don't know yeah. what you want to see they don't know why we they don't seem to understand why we use the services at all um <laughs> They've sold a lot of data to other companies, but I think we're still at a place where as in, as a system, we now have the natural resource. We have the data out there. Yes. But in terms of learning how to mine and exploit that resource, I think we're just now figuring it out. I think we're just now, and, and like you said, that is going to take a whole category of professional humans to sit down with the ocean of data and then design a piece of software, design an algorithm based on what they know about people, based on what they know about psychology. Yeah. And it does take a human touch to say, okay, we're not just going to mash two movie genres together and make a new movie. We're, gonna, <laughs> we're, we're actually going to do a deep dive into why did people like this movie? Why, why did this movie do well and this one not? Or why did the sequel not perform? And truly for the first time, maybe arrive at answers to things that used to be considered kind of impossible to understand. Like predicting yeah, yeah. youth trends, like whatever weird, dumb thing, like the whole thing is as kids is they 
you know, they try to do the opposite of what people want them to do. And it's like, well, how do you predict that? How could you have predicted any of the trends of the last 10 years? How could you have predicted planking or, or fidget spinners or, I don't know. It seemed like you could have predicted fidget spinners. It could have, you could have predicted that kids who struggle with attention span like to do things with their hands, you know, that, that they would want something that, you know, that's just person, personable and, or that's like customizable to their personality rather. Like it's, they can buy one that's a certain design and that they could sit there and do it while they're, they're trying to focus on something else. And that is like, if you had enough of an understanding about how the human brain works how modern youths uh, process information that you could have predicted in advance. Yeah, they're going to need yeah, something I, like this. Because as you say that, that makes me think of two pieces of fiction. One is the graphic novel Watchmen, where Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt, is watching an enormous bank of television screens and has a, an ability that's treated as basically science fiction to know what's coming in the culture. Like He's the one person on Earth who can do this thing that... Now I think data scientists will pretty much just be doing as a nine to five job that they drink coffee at and just hang out at, you know? And then the the opposite being, and I we had it in the notes here, it's this uh, movie called A Hard Day's Night. It's a movie from 1964 starring the Beatles. And there's a scene in it kind of out of nowhere where George Harrison accidentally wanders into the offices of a company that sells stuff to teens. Like they have a, a professional teen idol as their spokesperson and they try to sell shirts and music and other stuff. And George basically tells them that they're wrong about everything and they lose their minds. But it feels like a very real scene because I'm sure the Beatles at the time and then trend chasers across time up until maybe now that we have this data were wrong all the time. There was, there's just been a constant process of people <laughs> trying to sell something that's authentically teen. And then they, they come off as that one meme from 30 Rock where Steve Buscemi's in a t-shirt that says rock band and he has a skateboard over his back and he says, what up fellow teens? Like it's, it's that exact joke has, has been a thing of marketing things to teens forever. And I feel like maybe that's over. They they might have enough data and enough skilled professionals coming through the pipeline to fix that, and that's kind of creepy. Well, and I worry that there's people who don't understand why it's creepy because it's like I would actually not mind ads that actually know what I want. Whereas, yeah. like, I can go I can go on crack right now, and I'm not insulting our fine advertisers, but you can get like a banner ad for a a cruise a cruise service. I don't think that many cranked readers are taking a cruise in the next year. Like I would love to know, like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe they get lots of clicks on that. And those people have booked cruises to, to Alaska or whatever that right now, so much of it still seems like such blind guessing to the point that I'll go on YouTube and get pre-roll ads for like the church of Scientology. <laughs> and it's like, Guys, you you wasted your money on this one. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not saying you wasted your money in the whole campaign, but whatever system detected how amenable I would be to an ad about Scientology, it missed by a lot. I don't know. Maybe it detected that you have a lot of thetans. Do you think about that? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's a little <laughs> too accurate. But... um. 
they can't predict your future. They can predict the future of the type of person you are, and they can predict probabilities. And they can say, based on your age, where you live, your income level, how many hours a week you work, that type of thing, we can predict whether or not you're going to get a divorce. Now, at the moment you get married, you yourself did not know you were destined for a divorce. But humans, in reality, tend to move in fairly simple patterns. Mm -hmm. And for instance, anyone who has been a boss for very long, has been a supervisor for very long, can detect behaviors from someone that indicates they're about to quit or that they're going to abruptly quit. Even if that person doesn't know they're about to quit. (laughs) Because you can tell when they've started to check out before they realize that's what they're doing. Like you can tell that like the the motivation isn't there or, or, or whatever. And there are markers that law enforcement started to use to kind of dictate what neighborhoods they'll patrol. And a lot of those markers are based on the past. If you have X activity, it means you're also going to have Y activity. But they would say, well, see, these are just the numbers. Therefore, they are not subject to our human biases. But they are. Not just because they're programmed by people, but because of the things we already discussed, that it reinforces certain factors. And if it is a, whether it's a company that gives out mortgages or just that if it's a company just tries to sell education, like sells like computer programming classes, they are going to figure out, well, we get better click through when we show these ads to young upper middle class white or Asian people. And meanwhile, for minorities in certain income groups, we're going to show them ads for cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And because each side is simply chasing click through and sell through data, you're reinforcing all of the worst things and all of the inequality And even worse, you're doing it in a way that no one can be blamed. Right. The magic of corporations. Well, it's just a spreadsheet. It's an algorithm. It didn't decide to not give this person a mortgage based on their race. It decided based on their any number of factors that don't include skin color, but oh, by the way, just happen to fit the profile of someone who has that skin color, but they were able to remove skin color from it and get the exact same result. And that's that ultimately is the issue, and that ultimately is the thing that I only am joking about. In reality, has a very powerful implication of the future in terms of, well, why bother trying to sell these people on all of the things that in reality, no, are huge in terms of upward mobility, yeah. education, home ownership, things like that. As we look back on everything we've talked about and this sort of unified process of, of data driving this kind of thing, I it seems like the genie's sort of out of the bottle. And I think about what can and should we do now that we're in this space where people are doing the directly sensible thing of, I have all this data, I'll use it. It seems like maybe we also layer that with a leavening agent of, also, let's care about each other on some level. Maybe maybe that's the solution is is go ahead and use the thing that 
I think everyone will inevitably use and also uh, give a shit on top of it. And just to be clear, it's data science professionals. They, this is the subject of much ethical debate. It's not like they're unaware of it. Like we are painting right. this in the most like sociopathic way possible. But for instance, the issue with the, the pregnant teenager that's information that if they had discovered a medical condition by law, they can't disclose it. So the reason that was an ethical firestorm, because if their sales data simply deduced that you have diabetes or whatever, is that the same ethical violation as if they had breached that because that information is supposed to be private. So if there was anything about, I don't know, if there's an abuse survivor who is looking at trying to get away and they some incredibly advanced algorithm 10 years from now detects, oh, this is someone who aspires to move quickly and needs a temporary place to stay. And so they start pushing ads and then her abuser sees it. Right. That's the kind of thing where like with the dad finding out the girl's pregnant, we kind of like, well, it's a happy occasion. Ha ha. But if it's a case where I don't know. It's a wife who got pregnant, but the, they haven't, her and her husband haven't had sex in five years and he gets those coupons. You have yeah. all sorts of privacy as an ethics issue, as a legal issue exists for a reason. There are, are all sorts of people who have things that they don't want other people to know. And so you have the gay teenager in a heavily religious family that would not approve. And so he is in the closet. You have the atheist kid in the Muslim family that would not approve. And so when marketing firms decide they know you better than you know yourself and certainly know you better than your family knows you, and they take it upon themselves to start marketing in advance of what you're going to need, that's going to spark a debate that is, it, it has to happen sooner or later. Because like I said, if yeah. th those examples have not happened yet, and it's clearly a very crude tool in many ways right now, it will not always be a crude tool. I am telling you, all of the financial incentives are geared toward it being them being able to make the exact type of predictions we are only joking about right now. Yeah, it's the, as, as Harvard said, the sexiest job of the 21st century. And oops, we all live in the 21st century. Oh, no. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for confessing his future crimes because my Minority Report style precogs have not gotten a week off in kind of a while. All right, now I'm going to pop them out of the tank. I'm, I'm taking them for pizza or something. What, what do you guys like, pizza? Pizza? They're very quiet. They're not saying anything. And hey, you, why don't you pop into our tank of food notes? I don't love that metaphor as soon as I said it, but we're rolling with it because you will find Jason's column that sparked this episode in those food notes. It's called The Alarming Way Netflix Customizes Itself to Our Tastes. And you can see all his, his uh, bloody, crazy Netflix thumbnails in one place. It really is pretty stark, that difference. And many of the readers of it have tried their own kind of A-B test of those thumbnails. And it's a fun thing for you to do later uh, when you're in front of Netflix and doing that. 
You'll also find more background on Netflix and the marketing and data science there. You'll find the clip from the movie A Hard Day's Night, that 1964 Beatles film, where George Harrison very humorously freaks out some executives. It's a good time. And uh, I quote it occasionally among people, especially the line, she's a drag, a well-known drag. Really fun. It's, it's a very funny movie that kind of invented music videos. I recommend it. Of course, you can't find it on Netflix right now. Uh, so you'll probably never see it, but it's it's out there. It's pretty good, man. You know what else is out there? Our next LA Live episode. Mark your calendars for Saturday, September 15th at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles. It's going to be all about TV and very, very fun. We're going to come up with Emmy Awards that we wish existed. Categories and prizes and just other things that TV deserves. And we've got an amazing panel for it. Comedians Dana Gould, Demi Adejuibe, and Haley Mancini are all coming together with me at UCB Sunset on September 15th to do that show. Between the three of them, I feel like they've written for, I don't know, seven or eight TV shows, all told. I'd, ha- I'd have to go back and do some exact calculating. I'm no Netflix computer, uh, but they're all very, very funny. You've heard some of them on the show before, and I just can't wait to get into that. I think it's going to be one of our most fun shows ever. Why don't you be there? Tickets are on sale, I believe now. If not, they will be soon. Either way, mark your calendars and there will be a link in the footnotes of this episode or the next one. And in the meantime, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Devin Bryant and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where I I really want to do jokes about that show 3%, but not enough people have seen it. I would just be doing references to Ezekiel and Michele, and people would be like, I don't, I don't know, who are they from the Bible? What's going on? So so get get on my level. We need to get Portuguese together. And if you are a 3% Arino, sticking with that, reach out to my Twitter account at Alex Schmitty. Let me know that or, or anything else. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my show dates and newsletter and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.